The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Guests today join me in our studios in Phoenix to discuss the critical strategies in reshaping synergy and collaboration between business and social leadership, accord and transformation. Tom Bowman is one of the premier interpreters of global change, climate and energy science, and green business strategies. He's a social interpreter, advisor, communication strategist, and science interpreter. He's well known as having founded the Climate Solutions Project to develop public intervention strategies with a blue ribbon team of experts in climate science, social science, economics, ethics, and social marketing. Dr. Cleve Stevens is an established authority on the psychology and technology of leadership and organizational transformation. He's been formally engaged in the field of leadership development for more than 20 years and served as an advisor and leadership development consultant to top business leaders and Fortune 500 companies in North America, Europe and Asia. Gentlemen, good day to you. Hello. Thank you. Hello. It's nice to have you both in the studio today, and this is going to be such fun. (laughs) Obviously, both of you gentlemen have been on the program before, and Tom Bowman, you are a communications expert in the field of sustainability, and Dr. Cleve Stevens, you're a leadership mentor attempting to change the mindsets of leadership at the greatest levels. Could I start with you, Tom Bowman? Give me a brief overview, please, of your work um, over the last three or four years. Uh, Well, I got into climate communications work primarily through my design business, designing exhibitions for museums and things like that. And our clients uh, were the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. They created the Marion Koshland Science Museum. And the first project we did for them was an exhibition on global warming. This was back in 2004 when really bringing the issue up in a scientific way was very difficult with the public. Public was not very aware and not very engaged. A couple of years later, we did another similar project for uh, the Birch Aquarium, which is part of Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, California. And the attitude among the scientists just three years later had gone from being relatively cautious about the things they wanted to say, claims they wanted to make, to really feeling an urgency that the time for action was upon us. And it's because of that that I have reached out to experts and and sort of transformed myself uh, into a uh, an armchair social scientist um, and communication strategist to really figure out what's wrong with the way we're communicating and how to go about doing it better. And uh, Dr. Cleve Stevens, uh, could you do the same for us, please? Sure. Um, my methodology in working with leaders is based on a not necessarily new but nonetheless radical sensibility that says that the best way to produce sustainability in the organization and success is through a specific emphasis on the development in a very deep and serious way of the leadership body and through their development of the people in the organization that report to the leadership body. It's known as transformational leadership and in opposition to the more traditional approach to leadership which says merely I am in this game exclusively to generate a profit and my relationship to you if I'm the employer and you're the employee is for me to get you to produce a result and beyond that it's anybody's game the approach that I take says that that's not a sustainable approach that you have to in fact to truly create a model whereby people win at all levels and therefore the economy wins as well as the top and bottom line the leaders have to invest in the human beings and truly invest. That doesn't mean throw a class at them, but actually be committed to their fundamental development as 
autonomous moral agents and as business players. This is open discussion here, gentlemen. You can jump in at any time. And thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Cleve Stevens. Can we just uh, jump in at anybody's game at this stage? Just to give the listeners a, a brief synopsis of where climate uh, and the environment has changed in the last 50 years. I'll take a shot at that. Um, it was in the 1950s that Roger Revelle and Charles David Keating, uh, Keeling uh, decided that there was enough evidence to suggest that uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere could raise global temperatures, traps heat, and it's been known for well over 100 years, that they decided to start measuring the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the data set that, that has uh, Keating has collected, it's known as the Keeling Curve, is really considered a national treasure. Every single day, he was measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in a pristine environment in Hawaii. Uh, it started in 1957, and it has been a, an increasing uh, slope ever since. And by 1989, 88, um, uh, James Hansen very famously testified to Congress that global warming could, in fact, be a serious environmental problem. Uh, and it was around that time that the UN formed the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, and in fact, it was only a few years later that the United States and other nations formed, uh, entered the first international agreement called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this was a, essentially a, a, a statement by the world political leaders to say we will avoid raising carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to levels that would be harmful. What was it that we didn't see this sort of action taken earlier in the 60s and 70s? The real difficulty is it, it hasn't been until after the turn of this century, in fact, that the signal of man-made, anthropogenic, they call it, man-made uh, uh, warming, was could be distinguished clearly from the natural variations in the climate system. The climate is a very variable thing. You know, year to year, you get a lot of change. Um, and it took a while to see enough of a clear signal that this was actually being caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the deforestation that we're causing, that it was clear that this wasn't this was beyond the scale of natural change. So uh, here we are, and this may be a question for you, Khalif. Now we're beginning to look at the environment, we're beginning to look at the pollution, and we're bringing scientists together. But in actual fact, we're not distributing that or awarding any sort of information or public debate until many years later. If, in fact, we are at all even now, it seems to be that we are still in a community effort between scientists rather than ensuring that the public is fully aware and incentivized to become involved with that. It seems to be that we've gone 15, 20 years static without that scientific uh, exploration going beyond their cubicles out to the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really true, uh, and and there are a couple of major reasons for that. One is that scientists are not particularly good at communicating with the public. That's really not what they do. And there's been a lot of criticism of climate scientists for being such poor communicators. I think it's way. I think it's unjustified. We don't want scientists to be good communicators. We want them to be good scientists. That's what we depend upon them for. Well, this question came up with Margaret Lehman uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, she was certainly in accord with what you were saying there about scientists. But the problem is, who is the middleman between the <laughs> scientist and the NGOs who are supporting funding change and the government? Now, who comes into that vacuum to make sure that there's a translator there? Well, in fact, there's a vacuum, and there are there are a f small cadre of people who are good at communicating science. Um, I happen to be in, in that role professionally some of the time. Um, but I think it's also now the domain of the clergy, of social scientists, of public health people, of business people, um, uh, to, start, to start really working on the implications of what the scientists have been telling us. Now, the other piece of background that I think is critically important to understand is that in 1997, when the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated as the the significant international treaty mm -hmm. to deal with climate change. Republicans and Democrats went their separate ways, and they did it in dramatic fashion. So, uh, ever since the the um, the political discussion about climate change has been increasingly toxic, as many political discussions, uh, the political discussion, sure. many issues are today. Uh, and it has not come back together at all. Um, some of the hopeful signs that we see is that is that climate is really 
inseparable from energy. It's inseparable from other resource issues, um, uh, the population growth issue, public health issues, food availability, water availability issues, and these national security issues, in fact. And these issues are starting to combine um, in ways that are starting to expand, I think, the discussion in very productive ways. So uh, let me just conclude here in this part of the conversation. We're drawing a line in the sand here, as I've said in my notes, in terms of the alert to the climate changes. And we're looking around the 1990 era. And now scientists are becoming involved in that. Uh, Dr. Cleve Stevens, for you, scientists, would you look at, at them in your work as leaders in their own field? Would you look to them to change their mindset to perhaps uh, bring them out of that cubicle? Well, the the only thing I mean, I, I am listening listening with fascination to Tom's wisdom about this, and I uh, the only thing that I would say that might diverge a little bit from what he said, and I, I don't really have too much basis for this outside of the fact that as we move into a increasingly interconnected world, we have to broaden our scope of responsibility, and um, one of the things that the scientists have been accused of is being too um, unwilling to be communicative and to develop better communication skills and to own the fact that as the repositories of the most important wisdom on this, in the past scientists have simply been able to say this is the truth and it's been accepted. And to have this this deniability wing or this denial wing of politics that's trying to, to undercut what all the science is telling us, I think scientists do have to take a more uh, conscientious role as as leaders in this and have to be willing to accept the fact that simply be I agree with you Tom when you say that we want our scientists to be first and foremost good scientists I think that in this information age the 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 age of democratic communication across the board scientists have to be willing to accept the fact that some to some degree they're public personalities and if we aren't willing to own that then they will we will continue to have some of the problems with their believability. I don't disagree, but I would only say that um, if you're a scientist, there are no professional awards for going out on a limb and, <laughs> and saying something matters. In fact, there are very strong negative right. professional awards. So right. the, and there are some very courageous scientists who are, who are speaking up. Yes, James right. Hansen, Michael Mann, uh, Richard Alley, Richard Somerville, to name a few. These are, these are eminent and relatively senior Climate scientists—they're at a point in their career where um, where the fact that they're doing this is is not likely to be harmful to their careers. You don't see so many junior scientists who come forward this way. I, I was about to be extremely cynical and say that would you put scientists in the same category as a professor in academia? They they tend to stay in their room. They're paid their salary. They are in research mode, protected by the academia vehicle model. Is it? Uh, and, I, and I'm not being critical, but no. I'm trying to state that we're talking about insulation of people like this. Right. Once you're in that sort of situation, whether it's scientists or academic professors, it's got, it's got to be very difficult to move them out of that. Well, you sure, certainly wouldn't put them in the same vein as you would a business leader. And you would put them in the vein of some academics as opposed to some others in terms of what I, that would be my understanding. Because some academics are indeed... Um, the ivory tower has melted considerably too, and some to and that to our detriment to a great degree. But advocacy is a part of the academic world. Advocacy and the and the willingness to go out there. I, um, I, I do think that that the the fundamental issue is not getting scientists to own up to their communication skills. It is absolutely getting people to listen to the scientists and um, and getting our leaders who are. By design advocates, which are what business leaders are. Business leaders are advocates, getting them to understand the implications of the global reality. And that's, I think, and with the strong, extraordinarily well-organized anti-science movement in the U.S., um, we have to find ways to communicate to leaders in a way that they will own the fact that it's in their best interest. It's not, it's not some, doesn't, they don't have to be some noble, enlightened, disinterested party to want, it's in their best economic interest to embrace the reality of what's happening to the climate and what's happening to the globe. And I'm sure that would fit with what you, you're thinking. Oh, I wrong. think so. And, uh, but let's not confuse the willingness to speak up with 
being particularly skillful at communicating with the broader public. Correct. Absolutely. Um, the training that scientists have, that all academics have, really, is to, is to communicate in their fields mm-hmm. with their colleagues. And, uh, and the way you communicate with the public is radically different from that. We need to simplify in ways that are catchy, that people can understand. And that interpretation of science is very different than... That is, we are identifying a significant problem here right, right. now, then, that we don't have that translating model or mechanism that will take this information uh, and these discoveries by scientists and and explore it and put it out into the wider spectrum. And I would go one step further and say that we don't have funding to do it, that the funding institutions in our society um, haven't identified this as their job. Uh, most funding agencies are are n- focused on whatever um, mission they have or what narrow field they're they're in, and and climate change is very cross cutting, and it isn't in fact anybody's. Um, and that's not to say there aren't actors who are doing a lot. Uh, you know, you, you watch uh, National Geographic and Discovery and History, and they're doing a lot of work right. in, in these things. Weather Channel even, um, and there are NGOs that are very active too, uh, and so there's sort of a cacophony of of scattered fragments and it's it's i think it's building an underlying general level of awareness but it isn't focused on action one of the things that you and i've talked about david is the need for um leadership in the domain of public of the public in terms of being public intellectuals and i think that one of the things that the cacophony could generate or could lead to is the emergent of pub, emergence of public intellectuals quite frankly i think tom is an example of that I think that my hope is that the, what you're doing, because the, the truth of the matter, we haven't had public intellectuals in, that are really respected in all domains in f- probably 50 or 60 years in the U.S. And one of the leadership responsibilities of intellectuals is to learn how to recapture that tradition that's called the public intellectual who can speak to multiple areas at once. With mm. and and quite frankly, I, I I I'm not doing this to stroke Tom's significant <laughs> ego, but the fact of the matter is, where he comes from, the way he operates, is that of a public intellectual. Let me just move on for one more minute, and mm-hmm. we're going to return to these topics because I'd like us just to chart for our listeners. From 1990, we're discovering the problems with the climate. We're getting all this information. We're beginning to get alerted to seriousness of the situation. And here we are today, and we see that. I've talked about the Arctic warming, the problems that we've seen in the Sahara, and the problems that I've researched uh, that we see in places like Chesapeake Bay, uh, coastal erosion, etc. And as I've said here, we've seen the impact upon animals, migration, uh, we're, we're seeing um, migration patterns uh, being affected all over the world, actually. And my point in going down this road is is not to focus on that, but to actually focus on the effect on business mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. and social structure. Um, I, I, with interest, I was looking at a, a report online, which is proving that the freezing levels are changing in the Midwest. That's having a profound effect on a whole range of businesses uh, across the board. Uh, it's having an effect on, as I've said here, tourism, hunting, traditional business, especially small business. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me, uh, with that in mind, I'm trying to link up here um, yes, we realize we have a climate problem. We use this word sustainability, which I think rightly so, because it, as it's informative as long as the listener, as long as people understand what that means. Mm-hmm. But what is the link here between that climate change, the impact, and what people have to understand about it in order to change their lifestyles, mm-hmm. not only socially and personally, but also in business? And I, that's an open question for either of you, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I think that has got to be in place is a fundamental shift in our understanding of the interconnectedness of the, of the way the economy works and the way that the economy is interconnected with the globe. And getting – this goes back to the conversation we were having before we were on the air – getting people to come to grips with the fact that we can't say it's somebody else's responsibility. That is a fundamental shift in awareness of how we are to act and interact with each other. That affects every dimension of business, every dimension of how 
organizations that what you see the, in the cutting edge organizations today, these are ones that have already embraced that and understood that. There's not a separation between how I show up here and how I show up at work and how I show up in the economy and how I show up in the environment. And until there is a sense of that interconnectedness, it's virtually impossible to create this notion of responsibility. With that said, though, and again, this is open for you, gentlemen, it's true to say that people today tend to take the position of, unless I see something tangible, I'm not going to worry about it, so right. I'll default at that stage and we'll wait and see. Now, mm -hmm. that's not only a communication problem, but it's also a a problem, I guess, for you, Cleve Stevens, in terms of being able to change that mindset uh, right from the top down to the bottom. Well, it affects, it comes in issues from the same place that causes people to want to not accept the fact that as a leader, what I do affects the way children are brought up at home. It's all tied into our desire to create deniability and to say that I do not have that kind of responsibility or impact, when in fact I do. And so, the, the, way, the places, I think, where what I do and what Tom crosses and where they actually go hand in glove is getting people to come to grips with whether you like it or not. You're the causal agent. And as a leader, you're more of a causal agent than anybody else in the organization. And that means you're affecting not just the 20,000 employees that you have, but you're affecting – you multiply that by 3.8 in terms of how many people you directly affect as a leader. Do you, and then do you, you magnify do, that into the environment. Do you think – Possibly that leaders might turn around and say, oh, for goodness sake, give me a break. I'm doing my best. Why don't, we, why don't you take that and translate that sure. to the general public, to, to the employees, to the consumers, to the vendors, suppliers, and everybody else, rather than hitting me up all the time? And you do. You do translate that to everybody. But the, the upside of being a leader is you get the glory and the beauty and the money. The downside is you have to own the Black, this is not like an, an, uh, a philosophical idea. This is a black and white causal relationship. It's a cause and effect. And so we can either be liars about it or we can tell the truth. It's not a matter of beating somebody up. It's, a, it's in the leader's best interest to understand that because when they understand that, they can use it for not only other people's good but for their own good. So it's, it's really not beating them up as much as getting them to awaken to the fact that there's a great opportunity here. And it's an opportunity that serves the whole. It's not some big idealistic um, fantasy. It's really a pragmatic methodology or approach. Well, I, I would just like to, to say that's fantastic. And it, when I started my business, which I really had never intended to start in the first place some 20 years ago, oh. it occurred to me that I spend most of my waking hours at work, or a significant number of them anyway. It's one of the dominating features of our, defining right. features of our Absolutely. life. Why should I spend that in a way that separates it from the rest of my life? Right. And, and when I became an employer, one of the driving questions for me was, how can work and life be integrated in a way that doesn't cause people a lot of trouble? Mm. Uh, and you know, as a as a small business owner, most of us are finding our way, right? We're not we we don't go to leadership training and that kind of thing. <laughs> but in fact, what I've seen is that some of the most successful companies and vibrant companies I've worked for are living models of exactly what you're describing, yeah. Cleve. And and it's it's what's interesting is that the the methodology that I and numerous other people advocate says that not only do we want to make the workplace a place that does not detract from living life, but we want to make the workplace a place that vibrantly and immediately connects to and contributes to the whole of life. So that brings the, the values you care about as a person into the workplace in a way that you don't hear those values discussed much in the business world. Right. That's, right. that's perhaps a traditional outlook, is it not, that you're talking about the way that people felt uh, in the post-war years, where there was still this integrity, uh, uh, ethical position by workers who were proud to work for their companies. They were proud of the product. They were pr proud of the whole system from top to bottom. Is that... Uh, am yes, I right? in a and way. I, I'm defining what you're saying, and I'm, I was about to say, is that not uh, from a, a, a leadership, m mentorship role? Is that not what we've lost that we need to need to gain back now, which takes not only your work as a, as a leadership mentor, but also your work, Tom, as a communicator to make sure that those hmm. work together. Because you can concentrate on one level 
but you can't concentrate on everybody. So perhaps is there a method while you concentrating on the the upper echelons uh, in the boardroom that you're going to be working with somebody like Tom that that has a communicative uh, approach that that at the same time is is equally transferring that energy all the way down the line. One of the things that I've seen with uh, two particular clients of mine is that without me ever saying now since you're you're these are people that have embraced this methodology and taken it to a place where they're producing quite exceptional results. Without me ever saying now how are we going to take this into the community? One of the very things they've done is begun to embrace the whole notion of climate change as this organization and they without their Without being spurred on by anybody else, it was a grassroots movement decided they were going to embrace from a purely altruistic sensibility, what does it mean to become green? And with one of their fundamental drivers, and they begin to reach out to gain expert advice on how to go about doing that. So having – well, <laughs> I, I, I feel like uh – uh, I don't know whether you've answered my question or not, but but he's answered one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, could you expand upon that in terms of? Yes, I yes. understand that it's it's a uh, a social mindset that that grows through a grass right. level approach. But it's also but a it's, social. But then, it's, but then it's a technical, technologically driven, uh, communicative model that you have to then build at the same time to make sure that everybody gets that. Well, yes, but I think. Um, I would go at a slightly different angle with it to say that um, uh, there's a there's a terrific meshing here between the way you transform an organization and the way we should be considering transforming our culture around mm. sustainability. And it, and it's this: you have to work with the leadership to make a decision that a company is going to become stronger um, uh, and more more interested in in the lives of its people and its community. Once you do that, you don't drive the values from the top down. You don't, you in fact create the conditions in which the people who actually populate the business right. begin to express what their values really are. And that's what makes the organization vibrant, right? It, it, it's not, it's not just in the control of the leaders. The leaders create the frame and the conditions that let the people who work there make the company what it can be. Now, of course, if you're working in a multicultural society, as we are here now, with obviously some challenges, uh, does that <laughs> does that still you know does oh, that still hold fast? It does, though. It does, though. And one of the things that's significant about what he's saying, what Tom is saying, is that that the we because we live in a multicultural age, and because of the advances of postmodernity, we've learned to think in terms of respect and sensitivity. What we find, though, is that the values that are that are different are often minor values, and the major values are the ones that are shared. And that's, that's right. the part where I think that what Tom is saying really brings to the surface that what empowers an organization is when the leaders create the framework and invite the players in the company, i.e. the employees, to participate in the creation of what the organization's values are. There's not the disparity that some of the thinking would suggest out there. And I think that's part of why what Tom is saying absolutely makes sense. And it's interesting to me that the, that the um – example that you gave was a company that decided to make climate change one of its focal issues. And I think that that's very encouraging because I've sensed for a long time that there's an undercurrent of concern. And in fact, some of the social social uh, uh, public attitudes research bears this out, that there is a, a genuine and very strong concern in a majority of Americans. Mm -hmm. How big that majority is isn't entirely clear. Um, may not in some ways it looks very like an overwhelming majority in some ways it looks somewhat smaller um, but I think that there's an undercurrent of of a will to deal with this that but people feel disempowered may I just follow that up by suggesting that that aforementioned statement there is indicative of a society right now where we are still playing that game between profitability and the boardroom and the stakeholders on one side and the need for the critical objectives that we have to meet now for the climate, environment and, and, and social order. Well, yes, and I think, Cleve, you say it basically beautifully. You're talking about bringing uh, social ethics into the workplace in a way that is very natural for people but has become unnatural 
for corporations. And uh, all, all, all I'm all I'm saying is is yes, you have the the uh, the leaders here, you have the employees here, you have the consumers here, and the suppliers. Uh, all I'm saying is that you don't want at this stage to still have a situation where you've got. Uh, Separate competing uh, interests. Correct. You've got a, a you've got a still got a mindset here of profitability, which is going to completely oppose your plans to be able to help everybody else below the boardroom level to come around back to this position of be feeling comfortable right. and proud about the product that they're making. Right. That's only true from the bifurcated sensibility that is the transactional or the traditional mindset. And what I argue and what I prove out with my, what my clients prove out, not what I prove out, what my clients prove out on a daily basis is that when you flip that around, the, the interest and the well-being of the greater good is not in conflict with profit. In fact, it lines up perfectly with profit. And in fact, you create, if we're going to use the word sustainability, truly sustainable growth in an organization. I'm talking about the top and the bottom line. When the players, the significant players in the leadership begin to recognize that taking care of the people, taking care of what the society, what the people touch in our society and in our culture is tantamount to absolutely encouraging and expanding the bottom line. And, and with that, it's sensible to say that they are going to have to give away something here yeah. in order to, to have more parity between the boardroom elite, as it were, and the employees and the consumers below that. Probably. Probably. That's, there, there has to be some awareness of the fact that, that the despoilage that we go through in our culture is a function of that. But also, I'm going to have to... Okay, I'm going to have to make... 100 million instead of 2 billion next year. Ugh, that's a big heartbreak. That's really tough. Now, to, to normal people, that's, that's, that's seen as ridiculous. To some of the people who are compensating for their own psychological dimensions that haven't been touched, this is a fundamental issue that they're going to have to come to grips with. So some of the profit-driven, narcissistic leaders in the business world are going to bristle at this, and quite frankly, let them bristle. May I uh, move on to this segue that I have in our notes where I've talked about competition for resources. This was a notion that I had been talking about on one of my uh, letters from America, and it talks around the uh, problem of overpopulation. Tom, we've spoken about this before in a prior program uh, where you're talking about difficulties uh, with water, uh, with utilities, mm -hmm. with power, especially here in the southwest of America. Is it viable or is this a pragmatic approach to take that possibly we are still um, ailing from the movement of people from overpopulation from a country like the States being overpopulated where we really should be uh, possibly looking at reinvesting uh, more abroad? to uh, allow people to return to their countries to to actually utilize their resources and create more of an, a parity between these continents and therefore less taxing on the, the resources that we have in this country. Well, in a sense, you're asking, um, what do we mean by sustainability? Do we, do we mean the ability to maintain an, an exponential uh, population growth rate? Do we mean... Uh, Continuing to to grow the American lifestyle um, at the expense of half or more, well, most of the world's population. After all, we're only five percent of the world's population, and and what we're seeing, you know, we're we're watching carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere in the last ten years grow worse, more quickly than the so-called worst case scenario that's been studied by scientists. I mean, significantly worse than the worst case scenario. And just five years ago, the scientists would, would sort of laugh at that scenario and say, don't worry, that's never going to happen. Well, in fact, it is. And it's happening because the population is so large in India and China, and they are industrializing so rapidly to live a lifestyle that's a little bit more on par with our own, that they're, as they industrialize, um, the climate, you know, the the contribution to global warming and resource uh, uh, constraints is extraordinary. I mean, it's far beyond what we've been able to accomplish here in the United States. So, uh, another way to look at sustainability is is to ask ourselves an, a really an ethical and a pragmatic question, which is: Can we continue to waste resources the way we do because we're terribly inefficient? 
as the rest of the world seeks to have a life that's a little bit more on par with ours. Um, they would say they have every right to have it. And, and from, a, from an ethical point of view, it's hard to argue that they're wrong. Um, and so as a pragmatic question then, how does the world deal with six to nine billion people and the need to grow our food supply by half in the 40 years and the need to grow our energy supply by half in 40 years? The only way to do it quickly uh, I mean, we've looked for technology to, to bail us out, and there's a lot of really exciting technology emerging in the sustainability world, the green business world, um, new things every day. But we also have to radically reduce the waste of resources in our own lifestyle. And I don't think that means we have to sacrifice greatly so much as it means we have to sort of comb the knots out of our hair, you know, um, comb comb the fact that we run appliances 24-7 that we use for an hour a day. Um, and it turns out that that's, I mean, even Stephen Chu, the, the um, Secretary of Energy of the United States, will say that the, the low-hanging fruit for the next few decades is to radically increase our energy efficiency and reduce our, our demand for energy by a third or, or more. Without, you say, making enormous sacrifices. Well, I only say that because in my own company, we managed to reduce our carbon footprint by 65% in two years through energy efficiency upgrades. And no one can tell the difference at all. They're just as comfortable. They're just as productive, if not more. Um, And we did it by replacing inefficient appliances with more efficient appliances. And and it pays for itself quickly. So what it says to me is that there is so much waste in the system that the first step is actually a very easy step to take. You and know, it's only one step. Don't get me wrong. We but have no, but a I, to go. But I, one of the things that comes to mind as you're saying that, Tom, is that, that what that requires, in my estimation, is a shift in America is what I think Americans frequently have this assumption that it's our right as the superpower, as the dominant force, to spend and do as, ever we, do as we please. And that's what I call a, a cultural commitment to cultural narcissism and it, it, our cent- centrality in the world. And one of the things that has, I think, is shifting. And that's part of the reason why I see spontaneous eruptions of concern for the environment with, with some of my clients, is a recognition that we're all in this game together. That's a hard thing for many Americans because we are not educated to connect with the rest of the world. And I think that only as we begin to get past some of this cultural narcissism, which I think is happening, but and we will be we'll be willing to recognize that making a little extra effort, like making sure we're buying energy efficient products and absolutely unplugging them when we leave and not having them burn energy when they're turned off at home and things of that nature. I mean that that's a that's a shallow expression of what you're talking about, Tom. But I think that it is one of the things again that has to shift, it ha- and and it goes back to my area, um, which is a shift in consciousness, a shift in awareness, a shift in our interconnectedness. What I'd like to know is how do you gentlemen take the skills and the experience that you have individually and combine that hmm. so that you are changing that mindset, you're changing the way that people think, you're making them more collaborative, mm-hmm. uh, not only in the business arena that we were talking about, but also in the social neighborhood, mm-hmm. local arena. Yeah. And then have a, a system here that it's extraordinary when you think about the challenge of illustrating to so many people in this country that they have to take this action. And you're not going to be able to do that solely on your own without a communication mechanism uh, that is powerful. How would you gentlemen synchronize that to make sure that all echelons of society Great are question. getting, are getting mm-hmm. this? Great question. Tom, why don't you take the first crack at that? <laughs> the got, first step in ten. collaboration is to ask the other guy to go first. <laughs> oh. Well, it's, it, it's an, it is an interesting question, and it, it, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of question that applies to so many different levels. Um, on the one hand, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a community scale and organizational scale um, discussion that needs to happen. Part of it is to um, uh, is to redefine the meaning, the emotional meaning, and the values meaning of of what we're doing, uh, what we're doing to the environment, what we're doing with our companies, 
what we're doing with our economy, what we're doing with our politics. Um, and it, the nice thing about dealing with businesses is that they're manageable units. Most people think about changing our political culture, and it's it's such a big, difficult thing that it's hard to understand Daunting. where you start. Right. Well, one of the best places to start is where people naturally form associations with other people. Uh, the business world, the institutional world where people work, uh, schools, um, social organizations. You, you had mentioned earlier that there was a funding concern. Where do you get the funding to actually act upon this on a pretty heavy and widespread scale? Mm-hmm. Now, is the funding going to have to come from the leaders, from these major companies? It's probably not going to be government-led or even state-led. Uh, it could have the involvement of NGOs, possibly. But the sort of action that you have to take at a very critical time is so overwhelming that the funding is going to be critical to that. Now, is that where you, Cleve Stevens, come in to the scenario possibly and reach out to ensure that Tom Bowman and people like him have the funding to be able to send out this huge social reformation message? Uh, Actually, I think that's dead on the money, David. I think that that it takes um, the encouragement of a shift in thinking and a shift in ownership that is then directed toward the the wisdom and the guidance of people like Tom, and who now that doesn't mean that Tom waits till it gets done. Obviously, and you're not doing that, but 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 that shift in consciousness can also start with you and the, what you're doing, and then direct it back to people like me. It's a simultaneous, it's a chicken or the egg kind of a conversation, but I think it's both and at the same time, not either or. It is definitely both and. In fact, um, I think part of what this means is that we need to understand what the function of various kind levels of communication are. Um, the kind of work that you do, Cleve, with, with corporate leaders uh, is one it's very hands-on. It's very. It's consultative. Mm-hmm. It's group process. It's the mm-hmm. kind of thing that 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 creates transformation in mindset and a, and in action Correct. among groups of people. There's a, a community level social di- dialogue, public dialogue, in the technical sense of the word dialogue, where people learn to understand where each other is coming from and where their where their common values lie and where their differences lie. It's not about an agreement, it's about understanding each other. Um, those kind of activities can occur. Um, there are organizations that do that. There's also advertising, and, and advertising plays a certain role. It, it helps define a gestalt about something, and it tends to remind us of our understanding of something. Mm-hmm. It, it is really ineffective at, at instituting change, at, at causing people to behave differently. But it's very good at reminding us of the reasons why we might want to behave the way we do. So it's, I think it's a multi-pronged challenge. Yeah. Is there a consensus between both areas in communication and leadership transformation that will develop an entirely new approach to oversight of the areas of climate versus social reform in leadership? Uh, so I, I think that you're answering my question, yeah. but I guess what I'm looking for here... Um, I wish I had my glasses because I can't see a thing. Um, What I'm looking for here is actually what are the practical implications of you gentlemen being able to put this into practice? What do you need from society? What do you need from um, agencies? Who do you need to back this? Because you are talking about shifting the mindset of people from what i see the evidence <laughs> that i see that's going to that is a critical yeah. area i think we need to hire uh, cleave to work with the primary funding agencies in the federal government and the primary funding philanthropical foundations to get them to understand that the um that, that solving the climate problem the, and the bigger sustainability problem of which it's sort of the the center is their mission hmm. Because right now their missions are defined fairly narrowly. Um, the National Science Foundation needs to promote, it, when it reaches out to the public, it's to promote science literacy in our population. The um, uh, NASA's mission is to fund outreach efforts that promote an understanding of what NASA does. Same with NOAA. Um, many of the funding organizations are are 
the NGO or the the philanthropic foundations have whatever definition of their mission they live with. And that's all fine. That's all well and good. But if the issue is to deal with this, what is really a crisis point in our in our history, if dealing with a crisis is the goal, then it's time to rethink what our own missions are. And it's very analogous to what you're talking about doing with a business. Right. If I'm the National Science Foundation, let's say, as an example, if my mission is to is to create a, a science literate society, that's a very difficult long-term challenge. And the chances that we will deal effectively with climate change before we've done, you know, after we've done that are, are virtually nil. Yeah, it'll be right? too late. And, and the question is whether... It's possible for institutions who who are are sort of at the center of the opportunity to communicate with the broader public are willing to re-examine their own values and their own mission and their own um, uh, place in the world in the kind of way that you you're describing. Yeah, I think that it's very interesting, and, and I'm ready to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we need to fund you instead. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, we got uh, we got ten dollars here. To get okay, to get well that, that's a, that's a start. They call it seed money, I think. Anyway, um, the 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 point that I think is crucial here is when you talk about mission, because what happens in these organizations, um, even organizations that are supposedly committed to the public interest, they are operating from the same mission that hasn't been recontextualized in into the nature of where the world is today. And absolutely going back and reconsidering what are our primary values and in view of what those values are, what do we do to face into what we've got going on today? And it is, it, and it is a question of mission and direction. And, that, and what you're saying, Tom, is dead on the money. And I, th- I think that I was purposely using this phrase, social reformation, because that's <laughs> what I think it will take. And that means that your skills in not only reshaping the leadership right. level, but you're going to be reshaping society at all levels. Um, yes, you can start with them, and I, I understand that you're saying that that will have a profound effect upon everybody uh, uh, b- below that level, but nevertheless, you are looking at a total social reformation of I, people. I don't think and that's so, the wrong term. And so that you're, you are... Um, challenged with that and then I, I think the reason bringing you together is that then you have Tom who has the wider picture of being able to uh, mass communicate that um, to a, a, a wide audience well, and, the, and there becomes a, a synergy there that they can work in mm-hmm. concert mm-hmm. I, I agree that that's a good you know social reformation is 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 a good metaphor, but I, I would caution that we not make the mistake of thinking that therefore it's too hard to get done. Um, I, I often think of the analogy uh, of America's entry into World War II and the enormous social change that happened so rapidly in our culture. What, you know, the, the economic base was transformed within six months. Women flooded the workplace, and we have yet to f- complete the integrate. You know, the working out of the roles of our uh, of the two genders in our society. Everyone was committed, and if you if you talk to people who lived through that experience, they are their identity was transformed. Those people are defined sure. by by what I mean. Their sense of identity and mission in life was defined by that experience. And and what's interesting to me about it is how rapidly it happened. Um, there was clearly a recognition of a of a very tangible threat, and that's a that's a difference from what we face today. But I don't think that you know to say that we would have to have that in order to to make a rapid change would be wow. merely to say that it always has to happen the same way in history, and that's just clearly not the case. But perhaps this change that we're looking at now, which is a, a climate environmental business, uh, social, ethical uh, uh, position that we're in that that has to be changed is possibly a good one and possibly has good opportunities. You you can either get uh, immense and expedited change from a war, as you did in World War II and and, uh, more than the Great War, or through a Great Depression, perhaps. But it, it could possibly be uh, your mission, gentlemen, to change people's mindsets to thinking, especially the youngsters, that uh, climate change and the result is a tangible product that is good for them and it will be profitable for them in the long run. That's part of uh, what I think the Obama administration has done that's been smart, 
in in saying that it's not just good for business. It's good for the community. It's good business to think in terms of grain. And it's not just in the same by the same token, it's not just good to take care of your people. It's damn good business. So it all t- it's all of a piece as far as I'm concerned, which means, okay, we'll start from the lowest common denominator, which would be enlightened self-interest. And then we can move to a more noble thing later on. But for now, it's in all of our interest to absolutely change the way we think about things, fundamentally from top to bottom. Tom Bowman, in the last 30 seconds, do you have a... Uh a statement to make about what we've talked on today and possibly what our listeners could be thinking about? Well, I, I am th- very excited by this um, because I think that, that, Cleve, what you're talking about is, in fact, a, a different way of talking about what I've been trying to say for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, from my experience, the, you know, our... Um, our vision of what's possible and impossible changes very rapidly once we once we overcome our resistance to even examining the problem, and uh, and that's really the critical step when we are willing to accept that this is this is nobody's job but our own individually. Um, at that moment, everything becomes much easier. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cleve Stevens, your final statement for the day. Build on what what Tom just said about possibility. What we see in the greatest leaders of economic, social, or political change is a mindset that says things are possible that we've not yet imagined. And we have to be willing to consider that, that operating from a mindset of true possibility is the only way we're going to get to these, some of these solutions. Well, I hope, gentlemen, that this has been a useful program today and that we'll have Delightful. many more together. Uh, Tom Bowman and great fun. Dr. Cleve yeah, Stevens, really thank been. you for joining me today. Thank you, David. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have and that you can take away with you some thoughts about how we can uh, certainly change our world and make it a better place. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, any information that you need on this or any other program in the series, you can visit davidgibbons.org. We have now developed a feature where you can um, uh, talk to our guests and uh, provide feedback and their comments. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 